Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 175. One more really pressing issue. Uh, that has dominated the news this week. Um, can we get a visual of this dress? No, <laughs> no more visuals. <laughs> uh, there's a dress that's uh, going all around the internet that some people insist is blue and black, because it is, <laughs> and some people, because their eyes are defective, are insisting <laughs> that it is white and gold. What colors do you see when you look at this dress? Blue and black? Or is it white and gold? The fabric of this dress nearly caused the fabric of the internet to unravel overnight, with people engaged in spirited debate over the dress's color. That darn dress, you know the one I'm talking about, it's been inescapable today, dividing the world between those who see white and gold and those who see blue and black. I don't see this any white and gold. This is happening all across the country. This is no joke. I don't understand it because yeah. it's obviously white and gold. It is uh, blue and black. If it's blue and black, this suit is purple. The tie is purple. <laughs> the tie Does is purple. Yeah. Okay. There you okay. go. Boom. There we go. <laughs> this is very obviously white and gold. I, it's blue, it's obviously blue. I, I cannot see blue anywhere in that dress. I don't even know how you could see blue. It's, it's all coming at it's, me fast. It's too, a fact me. that you're smarter if you see it in black and blue. Social media is exploding this morning with a debate about one dress. The simple question is, what colors do you see, black and blue or white and gold? For many, the answer has them seeing red. <laughs> one to another dress trending online, and this one is causing a lot of commotion for the mother of the bride. You'll be talking about this one. She wore the dress to her daughter's wedding. Some see white and gold, others see blue and black. I look at this, I see without question white and gold. You, you see white and gold oh, in yes. this picture? Oh, of course, that's white and gold. What? I see black and blue, Where's no black? way. Are you being serious no, right now? No, absolutely. I don't get the white and gold part, I really don't. I look at that and it's so clearly, and then I find myself getting irritated with people <laughs> that see white and gold. And uh, you, we had uh, Mindy Kaling and Julianne Moore, and ta uh, was Taylor it Taylor Swift, Swift mm -hmm. uh, all tweeting their opinions about this dress. The last I looked, the BuzzFeed post that put this dress up and asked what color it was uh, had 24 million page views. What scares me the most about this, I feel like we've entered 
some kind of Gary Steingart, George Saunders future <laughs> where I, the tipping point for me where I was like, it's white and gold, everyone shut up. And then I, I looked at the internet and Taylor Swift had weighed in and that was the point at which I was like, you know what? I, I think Taylor Swift's opinion, I'm going to disregard my own sensory experience. <laughs> like, I think I'm wrong because Taylor Swift has now weighed in and that was actually, I mean, that's horrifying. I don't even know anymore. So what color does the dress look like to you? Do you remember the dress? I can't hear you, of course, but I do know you said yes to that because working on this episode, I've yet to meet anyone who doesn't remember the dress. And you probably also remember how our differing reactions to the dress kind of broke the internet for a week or so. In this divisive moment, in this post-truth, alternative facts, fake news era, we were and are still all bound together in a shared, strange experience on the same internet that so often divides us. And what bound and binds us is this image, an image that ironically binds us because it divides us so predictably. And it started doing so before terms like post-truth became as popular and as widespread as the dress was in 2015. This is a strange episode. It's not really about the dress so much. It's about how the scientific investigation of the dress led to the scientific investigation of socks and Crocs. And how the scientific investigation of socks and Crocs may be, as one researcher told me, the nuclear bomb of cognitive neuroscience. But that is getting way ahead of ourselves. First, just in case you don't know what the dress is, which seems impossible to me, or you've never heard the details of its origins, allow me to explain. Way back in 2015, before Brexit, before Clinton versus Trump, before weaponized Macedonian internet trolls, one NPR affiliate called the dress, quote, the debate that broke the internet. And the Washington Post referred to it as the drama that divided the planet. We live in strange times and things move fast these days. So yeah, a meme image from 2015 can seem quaint years later. What babes we were, what sweet summer children. Little did we know our reaction to the dress would portend a dozen coming epistemic crises and probably many more to come. But more on that later as well, because I can tell you that even today, when I have shown the dress to groups of people at conferences and such, a guaranteed epistemic panic cascades through the crowd every time. Ask people who see black and blue to raise their hands and then ask people who see gold and white to raise theirs and chaos will ensue, guaranteed. I think it comes from a mass realization that other people can see things differently at a very fundamental level. And for some, that calls into question everything. And for others, it hardens their views because they really don't like that idea. And so whatever color they do see, they see people who see the other color as others. And that's the power of this image. But for it to do its thing, it requires some sort of group presentation and realization, which is what it found on the internet. So here's a brief history of how the dress 
entered our lives. In February of 2015, Cecilia Bleasdale was preparing for her daughter Grace's wedding. A week before that wedding, she took a photo of a $77 dress at a London shopping mall. Thinking she might wear that dress to the wedding, she sent the now infamous photo of the dress to her daughter Grace to get her opinion, and upon seeing it, Grace and her soon-to-be husband, Care, could not agree on the color. And so they asked their guests what they saw, and some saw it as black and blue, some saw it as white and gold, nobody could get anyone else to see it differently, and so an existential crisis virus began spreading. And Cecilia was sort of patient zero, the dress was the viral vector, and the wedding was the initial transmission site. But maybe not, because it could have stopped right there if it hadn't been for a Scottish musician named Caitlin McNeil, who posted a picture of the dress on Tumblr. And she captioned it with, Guys, please help me. Is this dress white and gold or blue and black? Me and my friends cannot agree, and we are freaking the fuck out. On Tumblr, people started to argue over what they were seeing, just like people had at the wedding before. And within days, the dress hit BuzzFeed and then social media, and on and on it went. And at times, so many people were sharing it and arguing about it that Twitter couldn't load on their devices. The dress debate crashed Twitter. And the hashtag, the dress, was appearing in 11,000 tweets per minute. BuzzFeed got about 21 million hits out of it, and the article at Wired received 32.8 million. Celebrities chimed in, politicians chimed in, and for a little while, the dress was the centerpiece of a global crisis of the mind. Wherever news items trended, it was far and away the most trending item in the news. Let's get down to what we're really talking about here. What is the truth? And what is the truth in relation to the dress? Because I think the dress is a beautiful, fantastic, understandable, relatable lesson in what is the truth and how do brains make sense of it. Because you see, for Cecilia, back in the dress shop, in person, the dress was blue and black. And no one disagreed with this. Everyone else who saw it in the dress shop saw it as blue and black and not any other color. And I can vouch for this myself because in reporting the story, I went to NYU, sat down with a neuroscientist who has the dress, saw it myself in person, and I can tell you, it's black and blue. But that's almost irrelevant because the photo, the infamous photo in your brain, in other people's brains, in brains in general, is not black and blue. And it's also not white and gold. And that makes this image a rare thing indeed. One cognitive scientist told me that maybe one in 10 billion images out there in the wild is what they would call perfectly ambiguous. And the dress is one such image. It is neither white and gold nor black and blue. Not inside human heads at least. And there, it's whatever that brain interprets it to be. Meaning that thanks to some quirks of lighting, technology, and screens, the truth of the dress can only ever be a personal truth. And if you are unfamiliar with the fact that we can have personal truths, then the dress becomes a real philosophical conundrum. How can we both be looking at the same evidence, in this case, the same photo, and yet 
not see the same thing at the same time. Well, aside from the philosophical implications, scientists who studied color vision began to have their own crises as they tried to answer, why? Why do we not all see the same thing physically in the brain when we look at the dress? And since this is a show about those kinds of scientists doing this kind of science, I traveled to NYU to meet one of them. We thought, until recently, we had figured out color vision. That's NYU cognitive neuroscientist Pascal Wallach. Please forgive the audio because it was recorded in his office and there were people moving around in the hallways and stuff. I cleaned it up a little bit, but it's still going to sound like it sounds. And also, please forgive Pascal because he was getting over a cold. And we have a linear theory. Like you have this light and different observers will see it in this way. And we have a linear theory to explain that from the activation in the, in the photoreceptors. So you have three, if you, if you are not color impaired, you have three different photoreceptors along a medium and a short wavelength cone. And from the relative activation pattern of those, we can predict what color you will see mm-hmm. consciously. Okay? There's all kinds of implications philosophically for qualia and red light perception and is the red light you see seems red light I see and all that. All of that was blown wide open in um, February of 2015 when uh, the dress, quote-unquote, surfaced the on, dress. on social media, uh, on Tumblr, I think, actually, originally, and like uh, BuzzFeed promoted When Pascal first saw the dress, he had the same experience the rest of us had. But being a scientist who studies cognition and perception, he wanted to understand it, to figure out why some people saw it as one color and some people saw it as another, and that no amount of arguing could get either side to see things their way. And this led to his new obsession, to his current obsession, which we are exploring from here on out in this episode and the next. And, and so, at first, this was brought to me to Twitter. I changed my students. They were like, well, what do you think of this? And I initially dismissed it. I was like, well, you know, it's a very weak effect. This is obviously white and gold distress. And um, I kind of made fun of it, I think. Because if you look at a classic textbook from before, a perception textbook before 2015, the color constancy examples are always kind of lame. They're kind of uncompelling. They're like, well, everyone kind of sees these colors the same way regardless of illumination, sure. Mm-hmm. You know? But it's very subtle effects. And so, you know, I kind of dismissed it. A student pinged me on Twitter. I was like, what do you see here? It's like, it's obviously white and gold. It's a very weak effect. But then I went home and showed to my wife. I was like, ha, ah, look at this. It's still a thing online. She was like, it's black and blue. <laughs> I was like, what? So all night, all that night, I was like up thinking what could possibly explain this. And so then I wrote a blog post that night. It was like, nothing. We can't, we can't explain this. We don't know why, what's going on. We have no idea. Right? Like nothing we know about how color vision works is explaining, can't, can't explain this. Pascal realized that the dress offered a unique opportunity, the kind that scientists live for. It was unknown territory. It was a portal into a new scientific landscape. <laughs> that has to be super exciting. Yeah, I was like, imagine, I don't know, imagine if I told you, we just find a new organ in your body or something like that, that, mm. that we've just missed all this time. Pascal could not stop thinking about the potential of studying why brains saw the image differently, and thinking it could lead to a new line of research into how minds make sense of other things as well, he shifted his research focus at NYU to tackle the problem, while the dress was still going viral. It was super exciting. And so, immediately, I, you know, 
Pascal wrote a blog post about why the dress was worthy of scientific investigation, and in that post, he explained that he and other scientists, quote, currently do not know why some people consistently see the dress one way, others consistently see it in another way, and some switch. This was particularly exciting in the domain of neuroscience and psychology, or any of the cognitive sciences, really, because in those worlds, there's something that most of those scientists are familiar with called a bistable image or a bistable perceptual experience. It's something like the, the vase. It's called the Rubens vase, where you see it as two faces looking at one another, or you see it as a vase and it goes back and forth. Well, there's also the duck rabbit that looks like a duck sometimes, and sometimes it looks like a rabbit depending on how you look at it and sometimes depending on how it's rotated. These images are bistable within individuals, but the dress was bistable between individuals within the population. Individual people, individual brains, didn't seem to be able to switch, not on their own and not spontaneously, which represented something new. And he went on in his post to say, this was a great moment in internet history because it literally illustrated something that was an important lesson from the cognitive sciences, that the brain constructs reality and what we experience in our heads is a representation of what is outside of them, not a replica of those things. He wrote, one lesson that we can take from all of this is that it is wise to assume a position of epistemic humility. Just because we see something in a certain way doesn't mean that everyone else will see it in the same way. Moreover, it doesn't mean that our perception necessarily corresponds to anything in the real world. So a situation like this calls for the hedging of one's bets, and that means to keep an open mind. Something to remember next time you disagree with someone. End quote. Slate Magazine picked up that post and he took it as an opportunity to gather data. He asked them to help them record information from visitors at the bottom of the article. They agreed, and so his research began. Now, at the same time, other researchers were taking patches of the dress and had subjects look at them to determine if this was a case of mislabeling, that old philosophical notion of maybe my yellow isn't your yellow. And that research showed that no, this is not mislabeling. Other people were looking at things like, is it a factor of people's screens or is it something going on in eyeballs? And none of that turned out to be the case. This was a profound difference in perception occurring somewhere in the entire visual system, including the brain. People truly were looking at the same image and getting different colors out of it. But why? Well, this remained to be understood. And this is a good moment, if we're going to understand it, to talk about color constancy, because it's a fundamental part of what we are exploring in these next two episodes. First, a refresher on how color works. Visible light is electromagnetic energy. And the part that we can see, the primary colors we call red, green, and blue, are specific wavelengths within that electromagnetic spectrum. This light emanates from some source, the sun, a light bulb, a fire, and then it hits the objects around us. Those objects absorb some of that light and the rest bounces off. And then that reflected light goes through a hole in our heads called the pupil and strikes the retina at the back of the eye where it gets translated into the electrochemical buzz of neurons that the brain then uses to construct the subjective experience of seeing things. 
white light is red, green, and blue combined. But if you take away the blue, leaving behind only red and green, you will see yellow. This is why some objects can appear yellow in some light and white in others, by simply adding or taking away the blue wavelengths at the source of the light. But remember, the brain constructs reality, which is to say, not only are we limited by what the brain interprets from a limited range of senses, but also the brain doesn't always give you the raw information from those senses. And this is where color constancy comes in. Color constancy is the tendency for a color of a familiar object to appear the same under any lighting condition. So, for instance, if you've grown up eating strawberries and spent a lifetime seeing strawberries as red, then when you see the familiar shape of a strawberry, your brain assumes they should be red, even if they happen to be illuminated in light that subtracts the red wavelength. There's a great example of this that you can see in the show notes for this episode over at the website of an image created by researchers of a bowl of strawberries with zero red pixels. If you take Photoshop and you grab a pixel out of it and you look at it really up close and zoomed in, you'll never see a red one. There are no red pixels in the image. Yet, when people look at it, when you look at it, you will see the strawberries as red, even though there is no red going into your eye, hitting your retina, and getting translated into anything by the brain. It is a complete fabrication, which is, in a way, a lie told to you by your visual system in an effort to provide you with what ought to be the truth. The lie, in this case, is more useful to your survival than the truth of the image would be. And so that's what appears in your conscious awareness. Color constancy reveals you don't actually see what is actually happening out there in the real world. That is, color constancy isn't a physical property of the objects you're seeing. The magic is happening in your brain. Under different lighting conditions, a yellow banana always seems to be yellow, even when, in objective reality, it isn't reflecting as much yellow light as the brain is telling you that it is. You are observing the effects of matter on your brain, not the matter itself. Or as Bertrand Russell once put it, the observer, when he seems to himself to be observing a stone, is really, if physics is to be believed, observing the effects of the stone upon himself. Over time, the brain experiences regularities in the environment, and those regularities in the environment create expectations about what's going to happen in a new situation, or just in a situation that seems sort of more or less familiar and like situations you've been in before. In neuroscience, philosophy, and psychology, these experiences that you had leading up to the present are called your priors. And we use our priors to predict the future. If the train always comes early, we expect it to come early tomorrow. And when a situation is unfamiliar or ambiguous, the brain will try to disambiguate that moment using your priors. New city, new train, you first assume that it's going to arrive early, like the trains with which you are familiar, until it doesn't arrive early, and that happens a few times, and so you must adjust your priors. Pascal had a hunch that the photo of the dress was missing a lot of color information, which made it a rare, perfectly ambiguous color image 
that must be disambiguated by people's visual priors. And he had another hunch that like with bananas and strawberries, the experiences people had had with light and color over their lifetimes would produce priors that affected subjective reality the way color constancy does. Different priors, different constancies, different dresses. Pascal thought what must be happening was, as with color constancy, the brain was lying to people in an effort to give them something more useful than the truth. But unlike with constancy, for this image, it was telling different lies for different people. Two different sets of lies, dividing us into two camps with incompatible personal realities. White and gold, black and blue. And if his hunches were correct, then the only question was, what were the different priors built up by different life experiences that people were using to disambiguate this dress? And this is where Pascal's unique background came into play. Early in his career, he had been a sleep researcher, and because of that, he had a unique hypothesis. So here, edited for the sake of time, is him on stage with me last year explaining to an audience what he discovered once he committed his lab's efforts to solving the mystery of the dress. I remember a student brings to my attention, they tweeted at me, they were like, hey, check out this, this, this dress. And I was like, well, it's obviously white and gold. We have seen this before, it's color constancy, these are very subtle effects. I went home and, my, and I said, hey, look at a student tweeted at me, showed my wife, and she's like, what are you talking about, it's black and blue. And I was like, <laughs> okay, uh, we're gonna need a bigger boat. <laughs> and um, immediately uh, decided to study that. Like, why is it? Uh, so anyway, so, so those are two reasons. It really caught people's... It was like if you threw a life grenade into the color vision community who had been a little bit staid before that. It really excited everyone's imagination. But anyway, yeah. so, so what, what's going on is this. Um, let me walk you through this. So basically, in a nutshell, the same thing is going on as in the strawberries. It's basically color constancy mechanisms. What you're seeing is the end result of about a 30-step visual process in Cascade. And the bottom line is that two different people might do this processing differently. Here's what happened. They took an actually black and blue dress and photographed it in a shop in England on a rainy, gray winter day in February 2016 to prepare for a Scottish wedding on a Galaxy Samsung cell phone, and they super overexposed it. <laughs> Doing that, you have this washed out effect, so you are unclear what the uh, illumination is. I actually don't have a laser pointer, but if you look at the top, this implies sunlight. The bottom, and this is not a great rendering, no offense, the bottom um, implies artificial light, incandescent long wavelength light. So in other words, you do not know what the illumination was. So uh, it's ambiguous. It could it's be, ambiguous, it could be mean, in sunlight I mean, or it could be an artificial could be light. sunlight, could be artificial light. And so he, in other words, people, and this is like an old, old idea, people assume what they've seen more of. Now, can you think of a condition where someone might be exposed to more sunlight than other people? Day people might Some people be. get up in the morning and some people get up, you know, late, uh, like noon. Looking at large numbers of people, and I'll tell you in a moment why it matters, everything else being equal, people who uh, see more sunlight, some morning purse people, uh -huh. larks, are more likely to see the dresses white and gold. Let me tell you why. Larks. Larks. Morning people are larks. What's the color of the sky? Bluish. Kindergarten color science. What happens if you subtract <laughs> blue from gray? Yellow. Yellow. Let's, just, let's say you were like me, like a night owl. You get up at like, I don't know, noon. Stay yeah. up until 4 a.m. You have an incandescent light. So you're going to assume yellow light. 
What happens if you subtract yellow light from gray? Blue. 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 So you're telling me that the morning, people who, who are morning people, what do you call the night people, by the way? Night owls? Night owls. Larks, larks and night owls, unbeknownst to them, yes. in certain ambiguous situations, yes. we'll see two different realities. Correct. And okay. let, me, let me tell you why, that, why, why it matters to have large numbers, though. According to my calculations, you need 5,000 people to show the effect reliably. But we, did, we had 13,000 people, so we were able to show it reliably. Mm. It's a dose-dependent fashion. The more, the more of a morning person you are, the more likely you are to see it as, uh, as, mm. white, uh, as uh, white and gold, and the more uh, of an evening person you are, the more you see it as uh, black and blue. To make a long story short, we can explain on large groups who sees what. Uh, so uh, what I love from this is that it's our experience. Oh, yes, please, a round of applause, please. <laughs> and, and what matters, by the way, what matters my here is... So there you have it. That's the answer. And that work, by the way, took about two years to complete and involved more than 10,000 participants. And if you need a summary of everything we talked about here, a summary of what we're trying to get at before we introduce the next episode, is this. Pascal's research showed that since the image of the dress was ambiguously lit, the more time you spent exposed to artificial light before you saw that dress, the more likely you would see the dress as black and blue because your brain simulated the image in your mind as if it was lit artificially. The more time you had spent exposed to natural light, the more likely you saw the dress as white and gold because your brain simulated the image in your mind as if it was lit by sunlight. And there's something that Pascal really wanted people to understand, which was that this was a case where people had a lot of control over their life experiences leading up into that moment, which meant the choices people had made before they saw the dress determined how they saw the dress, because those choices had shaped their brains in such a way that the brain edited reality into something more useful than that ambiguous image, but it did so differently than other people's brains who disambiguated it differently. And that's because... All reality is simulated, and you live in a virtual landscape of perpetual imagination that is a self-generated illusion. Of course, you don't know that you're always disambiguating. You think you're experiencing the world as it truly is. And when a lot of people are sure that their version of reality is the really real version, at the same time a lot of other people are sure that no, in fact, their version is, you get things like the dress. But also, the Inquisition and the Hundred Years' War and $100,000 bananas taped to walls, and presidential impeachment hearings that no one can agree upon, and every other subjective opinion that floats out there, whether it be about a movie, or a musician, a book, or a television show, or, as it is currently, politics. But Pascal realized he could not stop here. Why? Because that's not how science progresses. And psychology and neuroscience can often be criticized for this. This was just one image one very unique image. So what if this research, like a lot of psychological and neuroscientific research, was describing something that can only happen in a very specific and possibly rare condition? And that's what set him down his next research path. There's a big difference between explaining something that happened and predicting something that will happen. The huge, huge this difference. This is the, the point of experiment. And I put that in the paper, in the dress paper, like, well... For to really clearly understand this, we have to be able to create it. Right now we can't create it, so maybe we don't understand as what we thought. Science, right, has several levels. The basic level is description. You describe what happened. You right. describe what is. That's the lowest level. 
like uh, um, taxonomies like that. Uh, let's say um, you just classify grasses by how many hairs are on them or something like that. Like Linnaeus, you know, mm-hmm. taxonomy. Botany. I mean, we can make a, a billion taxonomies. This right. is whatever works. The second level is explanation. Mm-hmm. Why do different grasses have different properties? Why do different bugs have different spots? That's where the theory of evolution came in. It explains why we see these different things you know, in an underlying framework. But then there's prediction from the, from the explanation. Like, if our, model, if our model is true, we should be able to predict what happens. And then finally, the holy grail is what's called manipulation, which I don't like to actually call anymore because of the replication crisis, but like control. Like if, if you really understand, you should be able to, to, to create the effect. So for instance, uh, a nuclear, nuclear bomb. Like if you can build a nuclear bomb or nuclear reactor, you probably understand the principles of nuclear physics fairly well. Because that doesn't happen randomly. <laughs> if you go to the moon, you probably understand gravity fairly well. Which if you saw the Apollo 11 like, documentary, that's amazing. There was like, I don't know, 20 windows where they had like a 10 second window to do whatever they had to do and they did it. There was no surprises. Mm-hmm. At every stage they did the next thing. They launched launch the next stage. So, so Prediction is so tight that you can... It was so tight that we could go to the moon. Mm-hmm. So the Crocs and Socks is that it's the cognitive equivalent of that. We built a nuclear bomb cognitively. And you, la- you laugh, but... No, no, it's so... I'm laughing because you said socks and crocs are kind of like building a... A cognitive nuclear bomb. <laughs> and the, the, the reason I find it remarkable, and that sounds very arrogant, but you might be surprised how little that is done in the cognitive sciences. It's often just description, just explanation, maybe prediction, but that last step of actually creating something new is usually missing. Yes, you heard Pascal correctly. He built something new. He built a cognitive nuclear bomb out of socks and crocs. Crocs, yeah. Those resin foam clogs, those much maligned shoe things. And why would he choose such an object to plunder the depths of human consciousness? It's pretty simple, actually. When you imagine crocs in your mind's eye, what color are they? He chose Crocs because they don't have any particular default color. And in the next episode, you'll see how a late-night madcap trip to Walgreens to buy Crocs and tube socks combined with marijuana grow lights inside Pascal's attic allowed Pascal and his research assistant to recreate the conditions of the dress in the lab, and how what they learned from that research led to his new theory, which he calls SurfPad, which stands for Whenever you combine substantial uncertainty with ramified or forked priors or assumptions, you will get disagreement. And it helps explain how people debate at the level of their subjective experiences, unaware of the influence of their priors and their processing, and how this unawareness is actually behind the veil of their deep processing, motivations, goals, and so on, is crucial to understanding why people resist, how to empathize with it, how to better overcome that resistance if that's something you truly want to do, and how to see your own beliefs, attitudes, and values as something under the same kind of influence as theirs. In this case, the influence of socks and crocs. 
the nuclear bomb of cognitive neuroscience. All that in the next episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this show, go to youarenotsosmart.com. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. Follow me at David McRaney on Facebook and other places. It's just You Are Not So Smart slash You Are Not So Smart. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music that you're hearing is by Banjo Apocalypse. Other music in this episode was contributed by Incompetech, which you can find at incompetech.com. You may have noticed there were no ads in this episode. That's because I'm switching to a new ad system within the company that handles the advertising for the show. But if you would like more episodes with no ads like this, you can contribute to You Are Not So Smart on Patreon. Patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Contributing at any amount will get you the show ad-free. At the higher amounts, you can get things like t-shirts, signed posters, signed books, and other cool stuff. The next episode, we will continue the adventures of Pascal Wallace and his research team as they build a cognitive nuclear bomb out of socks and Crocs. That'll be right here, same place, same time, <laughs> same podcast in about two weeks. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before, and this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.
S.S.